Alrighty, well, let's pray. Lord, you are good and you are our provider. Um, there are many little things that you provide for us that we don't even know. And Lord, we pray that you would give us open eyes uh, to see uh, how incredible your love and provision in, in our lives. I ask that you would give us eyes to see the depths of our own brokenness, but the power of salvation that we find in Jesus Christ through his grace. We pray all this in his name, Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're talking about salvation. What do the scriptures tell us about salvation? What, what did the Old Testament scripture writers think? How, what was their understanding of God being a saver? What do the New Testament uh, people think too? What was going through their minds in Jesus' time as he said the words that he said in our John text this morning? Is salvation something that you often think about? I mean, if you're not a pastor, you might not lay in bed at night thinking about salvation. Maybe you do. That's good. I would encourage you to think about deep things, especially if you can't sleep. But what do you think about salvation? Salvation tends to be a churchy word. It might be one of those words that we use and we throw around a little bit, but we never fully grasp or realize maybe what it is that we are saying. And that's like a lot of concepts that we find in the scriptures. Try fully understanding the Trinity. How can Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three unique revelations to us, exist as the same God? How can we fully understand the depths of God's grace? How can we fully understand what it means to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit? We don't grasp all of those things. We don't fully understand those things. But I would say this. We get to a much better understanding when we experience them for ourselves. When it's not just something that happens up here, not just an intellectual understanding, but we have an actual experiential relationship with God, with the Trinity, with his grace, with his Holy Spirit. And in the context of today, we experience the power of salvation, being saved. So that we might better understand it on a real, on a personal level, but also on a community level. Now salvation is, it's not just about individual faith. That's not the context that we see in the scriptures. That's cer certainly part of it. I hope that all of you would say, yes, I have experienced salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. But it's so much bigger than that. Salvation is in the context of God's people. It always happens as a people. It doesn't happen as a person. It's always as a people. So I want to tell a little story that helps, helps me better articulate what we mean by salvation. So in late 2009, early 2010, I don't know if many of you can think back that far, but that was one of those really crummy winters. How many of you remember that being a particularly harsh winter? Maybe it was just me. I got saw one hand back there. We're good. All right, so I'm not crazy. There's proof there. It was a bad winter. Um, I was working out at Riverside at the time, and I lived in Ames. So as the snow started to bear down this one day, um, Riverside kind of sits in a low area. I didn't realize how windy it was, right? I just knew it was snowing, and I said, okay, it's probably time to go home, drive to Ames. So I got in my 2002 Volkswagen Jetta, which was a fun little car to drive. It had a turbo and everything. Um, it was pretty snow-worthy, I thought, and so I got out on the road, went through town, and then I got out on Highway 69. Um, and as I started going south on 69, I realized, oh, this isn't just snow, this is a blizzard. And you all know there's two gray houses on 69, one before you get to the tracks on the left side and one after. So I got to that house before I got to the tracks, um, and as I drew level with that acreage there, uh, I find myself seconds away 
from rear-ending a Monte Carlo that's stuck in the middle of the road. Now, Monte Carlo is a rear-wheel drive, fun fact. So this is a car that was driving slow and hit a snowdrift and then just stopped because it was rear-wheel drive and it couldn't get any traction in that snowdrift. And so in that split second, I'm going along maybe 25, 30 miles an hour, very little visibility. And I have three choices. Choice one, I could veer into the lane of potential oncoming traffic. I didn't know because I couldn't see anything coming at me. Choice number two, I could rear-end the Monte Carlo. Choice number three, I could veer to the right and make a new home for myself in that snowdrift. And that's what I chose. Somehow in a split second, I chose the snowdrift. I think that was the best choice. So I was stuck. I got out. The person in front of me was fine, just frustrated. Uh, I got back in the car. I called Riverside. Riverside wasn't able to help. It turns out that's a really long way to get a tractor in a snowstorm. So they weren't able to come help me. Um, and another motorist then pulled up behind, and he stopped, and he's like, hey, I'm not stuck. I'll give you a ride to Ames. I'm like, that's good. That's a good thing. I really don't want to leave my car in a snowdrift in the road, but, you know, that's what I had to take. So I got my stuff out and put it in his car, and right as we were ready to leave, this red pickup comes out of the snow. And uh, I'm assuming it was the farmer and a couple of his sons jump out of the red pickup, and I'm like, do you have chains? They're like, of course we have chains, because they're farmers and they live in Iowa, so they have chains. And I'm like, do you think you could yank me out of this snowdrift? Because I wasn't in the ditch. I, I just got snow packed under the car so that I couldn't get any traction. And he's like, yeah, we could do that. And so they did. A as quickly as they came, I was free. This whole thing took about five minutes. It wasn't, it wasn't a long, drawn-out thing. I was hopeless, and I was stuck. And then, just like that, I was saved. I was pulled out of the sticky situation. It sounds a lot like salvation to me. Maybe not exactly, but it helps you grasp maybe what goes on when we are stuck in our sin and by no power of ourselves god comes along and rescues us so what is salvation salvation for christians it is the deliverance from sin and the consequences of that sin what are the consequences of sin well romans tells us as we heard a few weeks back that the wages of sin is death death is what we earn in our participation actively or passively in the rebellion against God and his goodness, death is what we earn. That's our pay. That's our wage. And so we desire salvation when we realize the condition of our sin, the stuckness that we find ourselves in, and when we desire deliverance from that sin. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about salvation. The scriptures also tell us <coughs> excuse me, that sin separates us from God. It puts up this wall or it's this void that we, under no power, under no effort of our own, can we bridge that gap or tear down that wall. Sin separates us from God. And Jesus died on the cross to atone for that sin, to pay for that sin, to do away with that sin. So separation from God is not just the Bible, something the Bible speaks of in earthly terms. There's this eternal conversation about it. It paints a picture the scriptures paint a picture of an eternal reality where knowing Jesus Christ and experiencing salvation in Jesus Christ, it opens the door to paradise where staying stuck or put in our sin opens the door to torment and fire. This is a consistent imagery that the scriptures use. And so in our context today, salvation is what we talk about when we want to experience grace and healing from our past sin when we want to experience deliverance from our current sin, and when we want to experience God's ongoing work in our lives to keep us from going back to the old life. 
We want to live as the new creation that the Bible speaks of, not as the old creation stuck in our sin. And salvation is a reality to be experienced and embraced both now in our earthly lives because it is an earthly conversation and later for all eternity because it is an eternal conversation. Now salvation also has something to do with things that we don't see. It's bigger than what we just experience ourselves. It's bigger than what we see. Spiritual warfare fits into this category. The Bible teaches that there are forces of darkness and evil and that God is a force of good and working against the enemies of God, Satan and demons. There would be no battle or struggle, there wouldn't be a warfare if there wasn't some sort of consequences for that, right? Nobody would play a football game if there was no winner. Nobody would take on a tough challenge at work if there wasn't a reward for that challenge, right? And so, in other words, there is a battle, and the battle is actually for souls. Like, there is a consequence to this battle. It's people. The consequence of this battle is being of God and Jesus Christ, or being of the world, or the evil one, or anything other than Jesus Christ. That's what the battle is. And so as we dig into the Bible's authority in the area of salvation, let us remember that this is a past, present, and future conversation. It is not a one-time moment in your life. Although God can certainly, powerfully act in one and any moment in your life. So let's talk about salvation in the Old Testament. Now, thinking about the Old Testament, in my mind, the big idea of salvation has always been you follow the law. And I would call that a myth. Following the law saved the God's people from their sin. Did it? No. Why didn't it? Because they didn't. <laughs> they didn't follow the law. They didn't follow the law. They sinned. They couldn't follow the law. That's the fact. And they atoned for those sins through sacrifice and bloodshed to show the need for a true Savior who was going to come and ultimately make the last sacrifice for those sins. They needed a true Savior. So clearly, the Old Testament saints and those who we would view with righteousness via the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament, they were aware of the promised redemption that was going to come through the Messiah. They might not have exactly had those words for it. They wouldn't have necessarily known Jesus' name, but they knew that God had promised to set things right. Everything that was unraveled and tainted and, and marred through the fall in the Genesis 3 account was going to be put right by God. So they saw this need for a true Savior. And, and these Old Testament heroes, which we're going to talk about a little more in a minute here, they were aware of this promised Redeemer that was coming, and they were saved not through following the law because they didn't. They were saved by faith in that Savior, the same way that we find salvation today. There's no other biblical way to flesh out this conversation of salvation without Jesus, without the Messiah, even if it's not specifically mentioned by name in the Old Testament. So our Jeremiah text this morning gave us a, a little picture into what the prophets were telling God's people about what is true here. And I'm going to read that again for you. Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8, and 12 through 14. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. 
They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green, it has no worries in a year of drought, and it never fails to bear fruit. And then verses 12 through 14 say, A glorious throne exalted from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. For you are the one I praise. This Jeremiah scriptures gives a really good, full Old Testament understanding of how they viewed salvation. First, we see in it, those who trust in the flesh are spiritually astray or dead. Again, you find that same language, that same metaphor, they find that in the New Testament as well. It's a consistent teaching of the scriptures. Second, trusting in the Lord is a blessing. And it's one that leads to deep roots. One that can withstand testing of heat and drought. In other words, when the world comes at you, when challenges come at you, when those dry seasons come at you, having deep roots in the Lord will sustain you. And then third, Jeremiah says that the Lord is the hope of Israel. Not the law, but the Lord. And the Lord serves as healer, savior, and the affection of their praise. He is worthy to be worshipped. To get a deeper understanding of the Old Testament view of salvation, we actually looked in Hebrews in the New Testament. Um, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews lays out this argument that it was by faith that those Old Testament heroes that we talked about were, they found salvation in God through faith, through trusting in the Lord like Jeremiah said, not through following the law and somehow accomplishing that because they couldn't. So the writer of Hebrews mentions Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. These are all listed in Hebrews chapter 11. And he goes on to consider them all in Christ, a great cloud of witnesses that surround each and every follower in the faith today and then in the early church as well. So the New Testament understanding of how the Old Testament heroes actually were saved or experienced salvation it was by faith. These faithful, inspired by God, New Testament witnesses to the Old Testament, those heroes came to know salvation through faith in God and the promised Messiah, not by following the law, since they too all sinned and felt short of the glory of God. And if you need a reminder of these um, heroes, a lot of times our Sunday school Bible stories, they, they talk about the victories, they don't necessarily talk about the downfalls of those. King David, a man after God's own heart, was also a murderer and an adulterer and many other things. Solomon, also gifted with wisdom and earthly riches beyond anything we can imagine or compare, yet chased after other gods, had something like 700 wives and just couldn't get enough, right? Like these Old Testament heroes, it was their faith. It wasn't their ability to follow the law. And that's really important for us when we talk about salvation to recognize that. So turning the corner, what does the New Testament say about salvation? And if I could boil it down to three words, you see it right there. Jesus is it. Jesus is it. There is no sugarcoating it. There's no getting around it. If you want to faithfully examine the scriptures in the Old and the New Testament, the person of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, who died and then rose from the dead, is inseparable from the concept of salvation. Salvation. 
as we see it in the scriptures. And so let's see why. Let's look at our John text. In John 14 that you just heard earlier, Jesus and his disciples are having a conversation about the Father as Israel understands God. The Father's heavenly house or eternity or heaven, you could say. And then Jesus' role in this matter. This is the conversation they're having. And when Thomas states that the, that the disciples, himself and the disciples, don't know the way to the Father, they don't know where Jesus is going, Jesus replies in verse 6 and 7, he says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. This is another one of those passages you can't get around. When I was uh, in college, um, I worked at the church I grew up at, and there were a couple people in my church who kind of knew what the, the religious, spiritual climate was at the college I went to. And uh, one of them would come up to me on occasion, maybe a couple times a semester, and he'd be like, so what do they do with John 14, 6 up there? What do they do with John 14, 6? And I'd be like, that's a really good question, John. His name was John. And uh, there's no getting around this passage and what Jesus says. Even today when so many universities or churches or denominations or self-identifying Christians try to downplay or explain away Jesus' words in John 14. Jesus is equating himself with being the one exclusive way to the eternal and heavenly destination of the Father. And he says that knowing himself, knowing Jesus, is equal to knowing the Father. This is one of those teachings of Jesus that leads the religious elite of that time to consider Jesus a heretic and a blasphemer since he is equating himself with God. And Jesus does that a few other times in the Gospel of John, as you would read as well. So Jesus says here that he is the way to the Father, and that knowing Jesus is the way to knowing the Father, both now and as it relates to the topic of eternity and the heavenly house of the Father. So we come to know the one true Messiah, and we come to know his death on the cross for our sins, and his conquering of the grave and his resurrection. And in knowing that and experiencing that, that's where we come to salvation. Now let's turn to our Romans text that I have in here today. Uh, Romans is an affirmation of Jesus' words. Paul was very well learned. Paul understood the Old Testament scriptures. He came to understand Jesus Christ on a very personal, experiential level and went on to write most of what we know in the, Old, in the New Testament. So as we heard in Romans, I will highlight again verse 9 through 13. He writes, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul writes that confessing that Jesus is Lord and a belief in the resurrection, that God is powerful enough to overcome death in the grave, this is the pathway to being saved. This is the pathway to salvation, as Paul writes in Romans. And he says that nobody who believes in Jesus is going to be put to shame. Now, that's not an earthly imperative, right? He's not speaking in earthly terms because 
many people on earth will try to put Christians to shame for believing this. But even though people might try to put you to shame for believing in Jesus, nothing that they can say, nothing that they can do can remove our salvation for calling on the name of the Lord. Nothing. And Romans clearly preaches what Jesus preaches and what Hebrews preaches and what Jeremiah reveals of Israel's proper understanding of salvation. There's other New Testament scriptures we could... I'm going to read these for you. I'm not going to dig into them, but I'm going to read them for you because they speak a lot to this as well. Acts 4, 8 through 12 says this. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then in Acts 16, 30-33, Paul speaks with his jailers, Paul and some other Christian captives. The jailer asks them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night, he washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Back to Hebrews 7.25, speaking about Jesus, Hebrews writes, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. And then Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. We are saved by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ alone. Not by works, not by any other God, not by any other name, not by any other clever schemes. This is what the Bible teaches. And we could go on and on here. There's many more scriptures we could include. But I think the New Testament scriptures are quite clear on this matter. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. So what conclusions can we draw from this? Other than the clear one I just stated. If we were to ask, how are we saved? How can a person be saved according to the scriptures? How is God's authority working in and through the word to lead us on the pathway of salvation? I would say this. We experience and receive salvation in Christ alone through belief, through repentance, and through faith. We believe in the only Son of God, we repent and turn away from our sinful ways, and we turn to God in faith, and we learn to live lives that trust in Jesus and follow Jesus where his Spirit leads. And again, this is a free gift, not an earned wage. This echoes John 3.16 when Jesus says, Whoever believes in me will not perish, but have everlasting, eternal life. We are called to honor Jesus' teachings here. If Jesus is truly the Son of God, if Jesus has truly saved us from our sins, if he is truly worthy to be praised, then what he says when he says he is the only way is something we should listen to. There might be many temptations to believe other things or to go down different pathways. 
but the Son of God has given us one. And so that, to me, we want to ask the question, how are we led astray? Well, we can be led astray in the same way, by the same tactics that Eve was led astray and Adam was led astray in Genesis chapter 3. We might begin to believe that God is harsh. Or maybe that God is unloving to not save everyone, even when it's us who choose the sin and the rebellion. And we might even believe that God is holding out on us, like I think Eve maybe did. He's holding out on us with some other truth that we don't find in the scriptures or we don't find in God's word. So we go forming those ideas on our own. And we go looking to those who do not know the Savior of the world to provide answers to our questions about being saved. And I want to warn you as your pastor this morning, this is a dangerous path to go down. It's not that we can't ask questions. It's not that we can't um, challenge and wrestle with these things that we find in the scriptures. But it's a dangerous path to go down and entertain in your minds and in your hearts. This is a path that begins with something the church calls heresy. It's the rejection of certain clear biblical doctrines and teachings. And it's a path that, if followed, it ends with something called apostasy, or the rejection of Christianity and Jesus Christ altogether. And I believe that we're watching that play out in our culture today in many different ways. In entire denominations, entertaining these thoughts that maybe God was holding out on us. Maybe God is harsh. Maybe God is harsh to not save everyone from their sin. Where the truth of God has been downplayed, where the message, the gospel of salvation in Christ alone is downplayed, or where it's skewed, or where it's exchanged for another gospel, it is not the gospel at all. And it's not a roadway that leads to salvation. And if you think maybe I'm being harsh here, I'm simply pointing out that our time in many ways reflects every time that has been up to this point. As Israel and God's people chose this path that led away from God over and over again. As the early Christians, many of them, when faced with persecution, many of them, when faced with martyrdom, repented, redacted their faith in Jesus Christ to save their own lives. And as the entire Roman Catholic Church entertained this pathway, which set us up for the Reformation, there are many different ways when humans across history have been tempted to follow this other path, or paths. And I think that's what we're witnessing in our culture today as well. And hopefully we're resisting that by God's grace. Hopefully we're grounding ourselves in God's truth as revealed through the scriptures. But it's not anything new to have that temptation. And it's not anything that we should really be surprised of, given the world that we live in today. It simply, once again, illustrates our need for a Savior. For repentance. Our need to return to God's way. God's truth. God's life found in Jesus Christ alone. So where does that put us today? The Bible clearly teaches us that Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, was sent to us while we were still sinners so that he could teach us, he could call us to repentance. He died on the cross for our sins and he invites us to everlasting life and salvation through that grace and power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is truly no other name by which we are saved 
Jesus and Jesus alone, Jesus and Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life for us. That's what the scriptures tell us about salvation. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you um, so much for your word. We thank you so much, God, that you um, have not left us without a foundation. We thank you, God, that um, you have worked through your faithful, your church, your people, through the power of your Holy Spirit to put your word revealed in scriptures in front of us today. And I pray, God, that um, if there are things in our hearts and minds that need to be opened or unlocked for us to understand these things in a deeper way, I pray, God, that you would do that work now. Even as we pray now, would you help us to understand what salvation is through knowing the Savior, Jesus Christ? And Lord, we know that we are always going to be tempted to go other ways, to choose other paths, to question God's faithfulness to us. But Lord, may you always consistently, continually, constantly be drawing us back to you and to your word. May we use your word and the power of your Holy Spirit to better understand and discern what is true and what is not, what leads us to you and what leads us away from you. And Lord, we ask that you would help us for, to repent of any ideas of salvation that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. May we be done with those ideas and cling to the Savior, the one who died for our sins, conquered death, rose from the grave, and now fills us with his presence through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for saving us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.